Okay, a quick follow-up. Last week, one of our astute classmates asked me a question about traditions. All right, you remember last week and the week before, we, the lesson was essentially um, that we recognized the elders of Israel were holding to their traditions, and it violated God's word. And Jesus spoke against them, and they were so eager to point out that the apostles often didn't follow their traditions. Jesus himself didn't follow their traditions. And last week we talked about how they noted they weren't washing their hands properly. And anyway, Jesus rebukes them and says, your traditions violate God's word. So do not follow those traditions. They're against God's word. And um, we studied that and all agreed that anything that violates God's word shouldn't be followed. And that that was one of the main sins of the teachers of the Jewish people, that they followed their own traditions of man. So, but the student said, wait a minute, um, if you look at traditions in the New Testament, uh, several times it's mentioned where Paul asked them to indeed follow his traditions, right? So, to round out that study from two weeks ago, really, we agreed traditions which violate God's law should not be followed. Not all traditions are bad. We have some of our own traditions which are okay in our life and in our family and in our culture, etc. And um, so how do we interpret the verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where Paul says, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I deliver them to you. And it's the same word that is used elsewhere where in the New Testament they say not to follow the traditions of man. And then there's a couple other areas where in 2 Thessalonians where the same word is used and Paul essentially says, follow my traditions which you were taught by me. So, as a rule, here's how I'm going to summarize this. When Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 to firmly hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you, what must that have been? Well, verse before it, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, says, be imitators of me be imitators of me, then he says, just as I also am of Christ. So that helps clarify what he's saying. So he's saying, I followed Christ. These traditions I gave you, Corinthians, you, you can follow them. We don't know all of what they were, but for us, we do know what we can follow is what's written in the Word, right? And when he writes those churches in Corinthians and the Thessalonians and the pastoral epistles in Timothy, he clearly is telling us some of the ways that we're to act within our church. So um, all that to say, we, we can follow Paul's traditions as he outlines it there in those few verses in Corinthians and 2 Thessalonians. Any questions about that? Okay. All right, let's go to um, Mark. And actually, also flip right now, actually, because you're going to be using this text also, Matthew 15. This is the parallel of the verses we're going to read in Mark chapter 7. It's Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 to 28. So just kind of put your finger in that section because we'll be going to that a few times. Oh, Bible knowledge question. Uh, someone tell me the significance of Zarephath, the city Zarephath is mentioned in the Old Testament. Is this where the widow is from? Yeah. That's right. It's 
So Elijah is in the brook Chenereth drinking water. There's a drought, and the Lord sends him to the brook and says, you can drink of this water. And then the brook dries up, and he says, Elijah, go to Zarephath, where you'll meet a widow, and she'll care for you. And so he travels up to Zarephath, and um, the story goes, she, she basically is starving. They have one meal left, and he says, I need, I'll eat that meal. And she says, no, this is for me and my son. He says, no, cook it, and I'll eat it. And essentially, she makes the meal. They whole family, her, the widow and her son and he are able to eat for many days and they drink for many days and they're cared for. And then shortly after that, her son dies. And Elijah lays on him three times and brings him back to life. And she says, oh, now I know you're truly, you're truly God's servant and you're truly speaking the truth of God. So that's the story of Zarephath. Anybody know in the Bible where it is? It's in uh, First, Kings. First Kings, right. Thank you. Chapter 17. Um, Okay, last part of that question. Where is Zarephath? Anyone know? Where is it geographically? Tyre and Sidon. Yeah, yeah. God, it, uh, teacher's pet over here. So, yeah, I didn't prep him. Good job. Thank you. Yeah, we got a ringer in our class. So, it is, uh, it's near Tyre and Sidon, right? So, that's going to be northwest of Galilee in, in Israel, northwest, way up there. So, just keep that in mind because that is a, uh, we'll mention it later when we discuss this story before us today. Very good. Thank you. All right, so let's read uh, Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through, th um, through 29, through 30. Uh, Jesus, uh, before I go there, you'll remember the scene here is uh, that Jesus just finished teaching about man's heart and how evil our heart is. And the evil that's in the world comes from our heart. We don't have good hearts, right? We have evil hearts. And um, he taught this to the whole crowd, not just the Pharisees. He taught to the crowd and the Pharisees both. And he just finishes his teaching. And in Mark 7, 23, he finishes that saying, all these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. So summarize it. Evil comes from within us, from our hearts. Okay, verse 24, it says, Jesus got up and went away from there to the region of Tyre. And when he'd entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it, yet he could not escape notice. But after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he was saying to her, let the children be satisfied first. For it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. And he said to her, Because of this answer, go. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed, the demon having left. So it has always been a little tough verse for me to understand. Jesus is basically telling her she's a dog, Right? And uh, we, we know that that's a derogatory phrase, and the Jews actually use that for Gentile people. They would call them the dog. So we're going to learn today what he really meant by that and why he used that phrase and that word. Um, by the way, this is a turning point in the Mark's Gospel. From here on out, Jesus is going to spend more and more time with his apostles. And less and less time, you'll see him with the crowds, more uh, 
teaching with his apostles. And this account with, the, with this woman is very interesting, and it's really an important lesson for the apostles to hear, and it's an important lesson for us. And understanding what this woman was going through is very instructive for us because uh, we see her faith. Uh, she has great faith. So first thing I would want to mention is in verse 24 when it says, Jesus got up and went away from there to the region of Tyre. He went into the house. He wanted no one to know of it. Why did he want no one to know of it? And this is a recurring teaching in Mark that he needed some, he probably wanted some peace. He, he had to get away from the overwhelming crowds. That's one reason. Um, Matthew's account in 15.22 says, Jesus went away from there and withdrew, withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. So the idea here is he is going into this area away from the crowds. And we've heard of Tyre before in Mark's gospel. And back in chapter 3, uh, after he heals a, a man with a withered hand in the temple, and of course that infuriates the Pharisees, he goes out and teaches. And you remember, there were so many crowds there that he had to get in a little boat go out into the sea, and there's like a, a, um, like a theater there where the people could sit up on the shore and look out at him on the boat teaching. That was how many people were there crowding him. So when he's doing that teaching, just before that, it says in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea. So lots of crowds coming around. And they were also from Jerusalem and from Idumea and beyond Jordan in the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. A great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. So even back four chapters ago, people way up in Tyre and Sidon had heard of Jesus' ministry and had come all the way down into Galilee to, um, because they had heard of all that he was doing. And one of those things he was doing was performing miracles and healing people. Okay, so uh, he goes to this region... And it says in verse 25 of Mark 7, But after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of the daughter. So some things about the woman that we just pick up in these first few verses. First of all, she's a woman. She has a little daughter that was very dear to her. And this, this phrase, little daughter, is an endearing term, her little precious daughter probably was a widow because you don't hear of her husband not certain but probably was a widow there was demonic activity where she lived and we'll talk about where she lived in a minute but there was obviously demonic activity because her daughter is possessed by a demon there was a lot of demonic activity when Jesus was around it says she came to Jesus so she'd obviously heard of him before way up in Tyre she had heard of Jesus in his magnificent ministry um, and she came to him because she was hoping he could heal her daughter. She was a Gentile. So you have the scene here, right? Gentile, lonely woman. She's in desperate straits with her daughter in this region of Syrophoenicia, which, you know, Phoenicia was pagan territory. This is where the pagans were, way up there in Tyre and Sidon in Phoenicia. It has the name Phoenicia because of the Romans. I think it was... Um, one of the Roman generals, Pompey maybe, who conquered this area and was part of Syria. That's why she's called Syro-Phoenician uh, because Syria was, I think, the geography or the... Anyway, the Romans were involved 
and this is the area that they conquered, and they called it uh, Syrophoenicia. If you look at Matthew's account, and go ahead and flip there now, because we'll spend a little time there. Matthew 15, verse 21. It says, uh, Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. So he identifies this Syrophoenician area as Tyre and Sidon. And then Matthew says it was a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. So here you see her desperation a little bit more. Her daughter is cruelly possessed. Have mercy on me, Lord. So she's burdened by this as well as her daughter. So Matthew's calling her Canaanite adds a little more flavor to it, confirming this is really pagan territory, right? The uh, historical enmity between the Canaanites and the Israelites was thick, right? I mean, it goes all the way back to the time of Abraham and then Moses and um, Joshua. And I'm just going to read some of the verses in the Old Testament to just remind us what the relationship was like between the Israelites and then the Canaanites who they were going to conquer. In Exodus chapter 23, so just after the Ten Commandments, and Moses is giving them the sundry laws, and then God gives them a promise in Exodus 23. He says, For my angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Canaanites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I will completely destroy them. All right? So God's promising Moses, I will completely destroy the Canaanites. In Numbers chapter 33, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you cross over the Jordan and into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their molten images and demolish all their high places. And you shall take possession of the land and live in it, for I have given the land to you to possess it. And so you can read in the Old Testament many areas where God tells them, I promise you, I will give you this land. You are to destroy it. You are to wipe it out. You are to not look at their idols. Do they do it completely? No. They say, don't marry, don't marry these people, don't intermarry, don't intermingle, but they don't completely do it ever. So the Israel is repeatedly disobedient. Nonetheless, though, the Canaanites were known as the enemies of Israel, really. And, and at the time of Jesus, Tyre and Sidon was um, pagan land. They, they didn't go there, especially a rabbi wouldn't go there and speak with a woman who was a Gentile from that area. So you would get the scene, right? Um, so her plea here first of all you see when she so she goes to him says have mercy on me Lord son of David so another feature of her character is she is very humble she's extremely humble she goes to him and says have mercy on me she's desperate and she's pleading with him for mercy she also by the way recognizes him as a son of David so even though she was pagan she, she must have had, have had some education about his what he claimed to be and what he was, a son of David. So she must have known some of the Old Testament teaching. Okay. Keep reading in Matthew 15, verse 23. It says, but he did not answer her a word. Okay, so she comes pleading, have mercy on me. And she says, but he didn't answer her a word. So there's a pause here. It's like he's not paying attention to her. He didn't answer her. And then in 23, Three of Matthew 15 it says and his disciples came and implored him saying send her away because she keeps shouting at us so she was becoming quite a nuisance to the apostles it just um, tells us 
how desperate she was, she kept pleading and pleading and pleading, and the apostles were annoyed. Uh, but he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. Second time. So she first comes and pleads with him. Second time says, Lord, help me. And he, how does he answer the second time? So first he says, I came to lost sheep first. And then she says, help me. And then look how he answers her here. And he answered and said, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. So another answer that says, I'm... You're not, you're not a child. The children here is obviously the Israelite. That's what he's, and she understands that. I'm not here for the dogs. I'm here for the children. And she said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from the master's table. But Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. So, uh, she is humble, she's desperate, she's persistent. She kept asking in Matthew's account, she asked three times, and she gets, first of all, he doesn't listen to her. Then he tells her she's not one of the sheep of Israel, and they're first. And then he tells her that you're, you're like a dog, you're not one of the children. Yet she continues to come back and ask for help. So uh, obviously a great example to us, right, uh, of her great faith. She's persistent, she's humble, and Jesus even tells her that uh, your faith is great, and she's an example to us of true faith. She really persisted in asking for his help. She was truly humble, truly persistent, unlike the faith that we've seen earlier in other people who had superficial faith. When they saw Jesus performing miracles and they said they had faith, but it says he knew those who weren't his, they didn't really have faith. Their faith was in something else. So she was persistent. She had true faith that he could help her. If you read about the rich young ruler, in fact, we can go there. It's Matthew 19. It's a great contrast to her. It's just a few pages over. Matthew 19, verses 16 through 22. It says, And someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? So, a little flippant, probably. What do I do to get eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one God, one who is good, but if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said, Which ones? And he said, You shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said, Right, I've done all that. I'm righteous. I'm good. I've done all that. Um, what am I still lacking? And Jesus said, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owed much property. So this man didn't have faith. He, he wanted something else. He wasn't willing to give his whole life to the Lord and to do what God says, because that's what he asked for, actually. But when he got the answer from God, he wasn't able to do it. So it's a good contrast to this young lady. That's right. He thought he was righteous. He thought, I, I followed all those things that you said. So it proves that that's, that's not enough to follow the jot and tittle. He, he didn't follow all them anyway. He thought he did, but he didn't, because if you read Matthew 5 through 7 about Sermon on the Mount, yes, I mean, if you hate your brother, you've murdered him. So, yeah, so he thought he was following the law, and he saw it as a, but, he, but he wasn't able to. 
She reminds me of John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. That's her. She, she was given to the Lord and she came to him. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. I mean, isn't that a picture of her? She, I mean, she was rebuffed a couple times, three times, and, but she was his. And he's not going to cast her out. So in the end, uh, she saw that and the apostles saw it too. Matthew 7, 7, ask and it will be given you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it will be opened to you. So this is an encouragement to people who would criticize the concept of God's sovereign election of his people. You can point them to this verse and say, well, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Just like this lady. She asked and she knocked and she persisted and she was blessed. Okay, so she's persistent, humble, and has great faith. Any questions about that? She's a good example to us of, of uh, one who um, is not turned away or discouraged because God has saved her and her persistence paid off, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And she was the one that ultimately became one of the blessed because she had nothing but Jesus. Right. Exactly. And it's a great contrast and a great image. Right. And we're going to talk more in a minute about this rebuffing of Jesus with the imagery of the dogs and this what he says to her. But yes, it's just a great example and hope to people that are persistent. And if we truly have faith, and by the way, you don't need a lot of faith, do you? You don't need a lot of faith. How much faith do you need to move a mountain? And then, uh, you know, there's several. I mean, you can probably think of them with me. The uh, verses in the Bible that talk about um, those who are saved with little faith. What are they? Um, help, you know, help me in my unbelief. You know, I believe. Help me in my unbelief, recognizing I, don't, I have that much faith. I am weak. I am tiny. So you don't need great faith to be saved. You just need a little. And it's what you actually have faith in that's important. It's, it's the what you have faith in that is the determining factor. She had faith in God. She had faith in Jesus. Okay, so let's go back to Mark's account. And I'm going to reread the last four verses of it so, so we can uh, appreciate this teaching that Jesus is giving to his apostles. All right? I think the first few verses really get us to appreciate the nature of this woman's faith. And I think the second half, we're going to look at uh, what Jesus is doing here to teach his apostles. And remember, this is a time in, in Mark's gospel where he is going to start spending more and more time with the apostles. And uh, so just keep that in mind. Okay, I'm going to start at Mark 7, verse 27. It says, And he was saying to her, Let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dog. So what he's saying here, uh, it's not proper. That word good could be translated right or proper or even beautiful. He's saying it's just not proper for me to uh, take 
this bread and give it to his dog. It's proper to give it to children first. And that word dogs is translated little dog, just so you know. It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dog. And the idea here is he's probably talking about a pet dog. So he's envisioning a scene at the kitchen table where you've got your little dog who is eating the crumbs that are falling down, right? Nevertheless, it's still dog. He's still using the word dog, and it, and it had connotations and meaning, no doubt, back then. But it's not quite the scavenger dog, because there is a different word for that. The kind of wild, crazy dog that just ate refuse and was out. It's not that word that Jesus is using. He's using the word for like a pet dog. Um, but it's still a dog, so we still get the, the point here. She would have understood the point of the word dog. So let the children be satisfied first. It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. And he said to her, Because of this answer, go. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And going back to her home, she found the child laying on the bed, the demon having left. So Mark's account is a little bit shorter than Matthew's, but still the same process. So even though it at first appears harsh to refer to her as a dog, I mean, it is indeed harsh. Um, and it also seems harsh for him not to pay attention to her at first when she said it, and it's also harsh that the apostles are sort of making fun of her, like, get, a, get away from us, you're, you're a nuisance. Um, nevertheless, the point here is Jesus, well, that has to violate what we know about Jesus with his children, right? Is he harsh to his children? Does he intentionally do things that are mean or cruel or belittling? Of course not. And, that, and she's one of his children, right? So, it helps us to understand how else this encounter is being used. He's teaching his apostles. He's teaching them something very, very important. First, about her faith, and second, about what she represents, which is what? The Gentiles. And they didn't get it. And even after uh, Pentecost, they didn't quite get it, because you don't get to Acts 10 until they really understand that, oh, the sheep falls down, and they really get that this is for all the Gentiles. They start, so it dawns on them slowly, even in the early church, how the gospel is to go out to the Gentiles. And this is another one of those um, scenes that points to that, that, that great truth. So he's using this to teach his apostles that um, God's mercy is open to the non-Israelites. Yet, it's clear that the Israelites are the priority, right? That's clear throughout the whole Old Testament and even in Jesus' ministry. And I want to read a few verses for you to remind us of that. I mean, Israel is God's chosen people. He chose them to reveal himself to the world. The covenants were theirs. The promises were theirs. And through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and I mean, the promises were to them, right? But if you read the Old Testament carefully, you'll see always, well, not always, often, uh, Commonly, God tells us that it's not just for Israelites. Even in uh, Genesis 12, verse 3, when he appears to Abraham, he says, In Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Okay, so even there, you know, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed through Abraham. In Matthew chapter 10, in Jesus' ministry, he says, uh, as he's sending out the twelve to do their... Um, their ministry, they're going to go out and cast out demons and heal people. He instructs them, saying, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles. Do not enter 
any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So first to the Israelites, yet at the same time to the Gentiles. Uh, other verses in the Old Testament which remind us that God's blessing is for all people is in Psalm 67. The psalmist says, God be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all nations, among all people. Isaiah 42, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you and I will appoint you as a covenant people, as a covenant to the people as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes. So all throughout the Old Testament you can see this. It's not just to Israel. There's a indication that this is going to the rest of the world. If you read Luke chapter 4, this is a really great little section. You may want to flip there. I'm going to read four verses. It's Luke chapter 4, verse 24. And we have visited this a couple times. This is where Jesus is in Naz early on in his ministry when he goes to Nazareth. And he's first rejected there. And remember, when he first goes there, they want to throw him off a cliff. They're so offended by what he says in the synagogue that they're going to throw him off a cliff. And this is the scene just before that. That's Luke chapter 4. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were, oh, this is where we're going to bring in the widow. There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. So, okay, so... Many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. And yet, where was Elijah sent? You know, Zarephath. He sent up there in Zarephath where the pagans were. Was sent to none of them, but only to the Zarephath in the land of Sidon, a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet. Elisha the prophet. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. So the self-righteous Jews did not like the idea that God was having mercy on other people. They, they could not understand that to the point where they were filled with rage and they want to throw God off a cliff and kill him. So this is how uh, strongly they felt about their own ethnicity and their own self-righteousness. We've already covered the, the uh, refer, he's referring there to the widow at Zarephath, which we've already talked about. There's another scene in the Gospels that reminds us that God's blessing is going to the Gentiles, and that's in Matthew 8. I'll just read it. You don't have to go there. It's verse 5. Jesus entered Capernaum, and the centurion, remember the centurion came to him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearly tormented, Jesus says, I'll come and heal him. The centurion said, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, he goes. Another one, come, and he comes. To my slave, do this, and he does it. Now, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. In the New Testament, when Jesus mentions great faith, it's often the Gentiles that have it, not the Jewish people. It's just a fact. Um, and then he says in verse 11, he says, I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer, dar outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
And then he says to the centurion, go, and it will be done for you as you have believed. So Jesus here saying, the Gentiles will come from all over the place, and they will be joining Abraham in heaven. They'll be saved. So the point being, all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, there is evidence of God's mercy on the Gentiles. There's foreshadowing of this coming, which we see blossoming in the New Testament, especially in Acts. The whole, pro the whole uh, progression of Acts, of course, it goes to those who are in Jerusalem, and then Judea and Samaria, and then to all the world. Yes. Um, I've, I've wondered before <clears throat> with uh, this one, this verse particularly, when he says he has a slave. Um, were slaves different than they were in the way that we think of them mm -hmm. today in the negative sense? As far as like Jesus modeled like his faith, and it's like so, not a bad thing to have a slave in those days. Like well, I know. So you're asking in the first century, Jesus' time, what were slaves like? Well, it's, it's both, actually. I think it depends on the word. The, the Romans had property, and they were slaves, and they didn't have rights. But they, a lot of them, as I understand it, were like servants in the house. They would teach their children. They would educate them. Um, I don't think they had the same uh, treatment that we think of of American slaves sure. that were you know, treated brutally. But go ahead. They were. I mean, some of them were Mm -hmm. It was okay under Roman law to murder your slave if you That's wanted right. to. So even even the Old Testament, the Hebrew teachings mm -hmm. teach about slavery. You know, they just have that you know, Jubilee where they set free. Yep. But you know, this this was just part of the culture. You know, and there were there were slaves that were that were looked at immorally. Um, but apparently this this centurion was a pretty righteous guy. Yeah. So um I think the point is they, they did not have rights. They were considered property by the Romans. I think practically some of them were treated bad, but their whole economy functioned around the use of the slaves. It was very prevalent. I'm not sure if that's a great answer. I've studied this before, and I'm forgetting all the details. Thanks for your help. Um, does that answer your question? Thank you. So Brady's basically saying that it was part of their economy and um, part of the way society functioned. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I think. Yeah, I think, I think mostly it was lands that were conquered, uh, but I think uh, it wasn't racial. Yeah, it wasn't like a certain race is going to be slave. Right. I know in Rome, they would conquer a land and those people would be slaves. Okay, so um, where were we? Yes, so mercy on the Gentiles is seen in the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
Um, and that is the point Jesus is making to his apostles. I think essentially, that's what I'm saying. That, and I think the reason, if you step outside of the interaction directly between Jesus and the woman and what she was going through, and step back and recognize Jesus is actually teaching his disciples about what, how to understand, um, how to understand um, this expansion of the gospel to those who don't deserve it. And when you look at and understand where she came from in a pagan area, weak, poor, she had nothing, and Jesus had mercy on her, then it showed the apostles there's going to be a time when you are actually going to be going out to these people, the Gentiles, people that aren't Jewish, that aren't like you. And you have to understand that's how it's going to work. And I'm sure that they remember this. And Peter was there, and he told Mark about it, and Mark recorded it for us to understand also. In Acts chapter 10, well, um, Acts 10, 43, Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. That's the, that's the uh, verse in Acts that we see the the early church recognizing that this is all for the Gentiles. I want to read for us one verse from 1 Peter chapter 1. Flip there, because uh, as I read it, just think of this woman, all right? This is a really beautiful verse, the first few verses of 1 Peter chapter 1. And um, it doesn't directly apply to her, but, it, but you can... I, <coughs> thought of this as I was going through in my mind the situation that she was in about faith. And I'll read it for you, starting at chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you've not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which have now been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So, first thing, this gospel is to us Gentile people. And it is a miracle of God to do that. And we ought to be humble and grateful and consider ourselves just like that woman did. I didn't point out. 
when Jesus says the dogs says, you know, I, the dogs are just to eat the crumbs, she doesn't say no. She says, yes, Lord. I forgot to bring this point out. She says, yes, Lord. I know. I'm a dog. I'm a little dog at the table. I, I know. I don't deserve it. I'm not one of the children. I'm just a little dog. So we ought to have the same appreciation. We are little dogs <coughs> scurrying around at the, at the table, and we don't deserve to eat the meal that other people do. So praise God and thank God he saved us because he loves us. And um, the other point I want to make in this verse is when I read in verse 6 about being distressed by various trials so that the proof of your faith, so the proof of her faith, okay, it was like a trial for her to come to Jesus, right? The proof of that faith was glory and honor to Christ. And I think the proof of her faith was an example to those apostles and it brought glory and honor to Christ because of what he did through her. And then they can tell us about it. Any questions? Okay. Crucial point. I did forgot to neglect. Yeah, the speaking in tongues. A great image. This is going out to all nations, all tongues. Yep. You know, um, in, in John chapter 7, they, um, the Pharisees are arguing amongst each other. And they say, you know, look and see, does any prophet arise out of Galilee? And the, their implied answer was no. But in fact, there was a prophet. Mm-hmm. And uh, <clears throat> think about Jonah. Jonah was the prop. He was the most successful evangelist in mm-hmm. the entire Bible, Old and New Testament. God sent him to a Gentile nation yeah. that was an enemy of Israel. Yeah. And, and he went kicking and screaming. Mm-hmm. And when he gave, delivered his message, he mumbled it. Mm-hmm. He, he did not want them. He had just this to say. Yet, 40 days. Mm-hmm. This whole message, and the whole city repented. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, <clears throat> and this made Jonah angry because he was such a racist. Mm-hmm. He was so zealous for being Jewish, yep. and so against um, the, you know, the Gentiles getting mm-hmm. the gospel. Yep. And uh, which was the same gospel then as it is today, which yep. is. Mm-hmm. And cover your sins. Yep. And so, <clears throat> the, the amazing thing is, 
Yeah, so good, yeah. Now, <clears throat> what's more telling about the whole thing is that in Jewish lore or Jewish tradition, they believed that Jonah was the son of the widow of Zareth. Hmm. That's, that, that's interesting. Is it possible, the timing of it? Well, that's so interesting. But Jonah is, I mean, thank you. Jonah is a great example. And we, I'm sorry I didn't bring him up in the context of this, exactly stating to us what the apostles just learned. Yeah, I mean, he was sent to the, his enemies. And he didn't want to do it. He hated them. And two, and right, thank you. Two, throughout Mark's gospel, you see he's the suffering servant. He seems to be constantly wanting to go somewhere for a little rest, to be with the disciples. And get, they enter this house here in, um, in Tyre, and it says he withdrew from the crowd. So he's a suffering servant, and his ministry, though, doesn't end. He never really gets a chance to rest. And that's another lesson for the apostles, that um, it's tiresome work, and you don't get to rest when you want often. Go ahead. Um, I'm thinking about how, you know, even as Christians and we understand this Gentile issue, but how easy it is for us to trust in our, like, our hides or our tribes. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to, we, as humans and sinful humans, we tend to trust in man-made yeah. groups. Yeah. Um, in America, and I'm not you in that. Um, like this, whatever group you identify with, we trust mm-hmm. in. We think how the Israelites, that temptation was because they had God's endorsement on their yeah. hides, right. on their yeah. uh, country. Yeah. And so Jesus really had to do extra work, I, I guess, to snatch that that trust. You know, to every, whatever degree you're trusting in mm-hmm. this man-made institution, it's yeah. not all from God. You know, so they had, a, like I guess I'm saying, a double yeah. temptation. That's right. And it really was a lot of work, and, and it's very difficult for them, I imagine, to... Mm-hmm. Very much so. I mean, they were separated. We've talked about this last three weeks. You know, they had the circumcision. They had the dietary laws. They had the sacrificial system. They had the temple. They had all these uh, visual realities that allowed them to be separate from the rest of the world, to be clean and separate. Um, but I think the point for us is, like you said, we do it too. I think especially in America. Like America and Christians are, we just might think, different than you know, an Iraqi Christian or a, I don't know, African, I don't know if, if you guys think that way, but sometimes I think we get caught into that trap. Or even our denomination of our church, you can get a little too haughty on that and too high-minded and not recognize, well, there's Christians everywhere and we ought to uh, be merciful and kind and open to all that. 
we tend to be in our hives. We have to guard against it. Anything else? Well, we'll end early.